You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Tracy Brimhall. Tracy, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Tracy, um, you're in uh, you're in Kansas now. I feel like I should just ask a little bit about how it how it is there. It's August 18th in 2021. How are you in Kansas? Um, we're okay. It's a little bit warm here, and some of the Delta surge from Missouri is making its way to Kansas. But other than that, it is pretty okay. It's a land of big sky, and we get pretty sunsets over here. Oh, that's nice to hear. So, so let's talk about your work. Um, of course, you've written quite a bit. Your poems have appeared in numerous publications, and you have another book out this year, which is Come the Slumberless to the Land of Nod. Is, is that correct? That's the book that just came out from Copper Canyon Press? Yeah, that one came out uh, just this past year, so like right in time for COVID <laughs> and canceled book tours and staying at home and reading poems to myself instead of to other people. So, so let's let's um, let's talk about that book a little bit. I know um, you're going to read at least a poem from there um, that that came out in the pandemic, right? But it was written just before the pandemic. Uh, can we talk a little bit about how that felt to come for the book to come out in the pandemic itself? Did that have a a kind of impact on on its release into the world? Yeah, it definitely uh, definitely did because it was released April 2020, so it was right as everything um, was coming to a standstill um, in the country. So uh, definitely poems, um, like there are poems and pieces written there that were written while I was pregnant and having a newborn, and my son is now um, almost eight years old. So like the work itself stretches back a ways um, into the past, because it always takes, you know, a while for all of the things to come together and a book to be accepted and printed and um, distributed. So there's always, like, a lag time. And I don't know, you know, how much people might know that, that there is a big span of time between creation and when it finds the world. Um, But I do kind of like that period. I I like the writing and the making part. Um, And just like other deliveries, it's really difficult to have a book at any time so, of course, it was hard for it to come out at a time where I couldn't do the book launch party and I couldn't do the ways I normally would, you know, try and celebrate a book being in the world and right. connect with others. But it did, I think it took everybody a minute to get the hang of sort of online book launches and online readings and all of that kind of thing. But I think now that people have sort of gotten the hang of it, it's introduced like so many great ways for people, not just because of the pandemic, but I live in central Kansas, so we don't have a ton of writers come through. I've been able to like watch other readings or attend other lectures or do other things because of great online platforms and the way people have embraced um, all of those sort of online reading things and just be a part of things that I would not have been a part of without the way the pandemic has shifted the world. So... I'm, That's I found interesting, right? Grateful, in, in, but in, it the world, surprise, in the world of you know? readings and, and poets and everything, I mean, the the kind of Zoom online world um, supported you in that. That was a kind of uh, an opening, or or, or how, how should we talk about that? Like, it, like you're saying, it sounds like there there was new resources, there was new ways of of working together that somehow was was helpful in getting through the time, specifically as a as a poet and a writer. We're talking about online 
forums, right? Yeah, so like there's tons of – I got invited to tons of readings that I couldn't have gone to or managed to do otherwise. I did way more readings for this book than for other books that have come out just because it was so much easier that, you know, while my kid is doing his homework and I've got, you know, dinner in the crock pot, I can hop on and Zoom <laughs> and do a reading. Um, so it made it so much more possible to continue to live my life, do my job, you know, be a, be a parent and be a friend and be a partner and be all these things while also being a poet. Because to get out of Kansas, you've got to drive somewhere and fly somewhere and be picked up and stay in a hotel and then go meet people. However, I think it's great that it's made it more flexible, but I do miss meeting in person. It's like if all you ever did was have, you know, texting dates and you never met a person for coffee. <laughs> it's like there is an right. intimacy to like face-to-face -face human interaction that I don't feel that the online platforms can fully replicate. Um, but I am so grateful that there are still ways to adapt and connect um, and be among people. And I definitely could feel that difference online. Um, though I do, I do miss seeing people's faces, even just half their faces um, with masks on. Um, and I, I do miss interacting with human beings in real time and not just screens. But I, I really appreciate that people showed up to those audiences, that people planned those events, that people still found a way to connect even in a really difficult time. Yeah, I think that is, that is so interesting. Um, Tracy, you've, you've had a, you know, a, a career as a poet, so to speak. And, and to talk about that a little bit, you know, I, I interview artists, I interview curators, I interview a lot of different types of people in the art world. But poets seem to have a kind of very unique place. And, and just correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, there's a, there's a different type of careerism in being a poet, right? You've, you've you know, published in, in, in so many great magazines and, and won significant awards. You are, uh, I, I, to, to, to my estimate, right, a professional poet, an accomplished poet. But it's quite different than the way, like, a, a visual artist finds themselves accomplished or, you know, or a performer or, or, or something else. And I think specifically what I mean is in, in terms of career, a visual artist, a painter can hope that they will sell or make money one day. Um, maybe, you know, other, other mediums, not so much, but, but poetry, you know, is, you know, always feels to me a little bit more like a gift. Like it, it, it doesn't have that. It doesn't fit into capitalism, late capitalism very well. It's its own entity, its own world. So um, if I'm not getting too vague here, I'm, I'm trying to ask about the career of a poet, the, profes the professional career of a poet. It, it seems to me almost a kind of um, a poem in itself because it's so distinct from any other artist's career. Is, is that correct or, or am I just making that up? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think uh, for the most part, uh, there's a lot of capitalism that still invades every art, right? And I think, especially with poetry, you can get caught up in the must produce, must produce, must produce. And they're so tiny. Um, you can make them really fast. Um, but I, I do think in terms of, like, actual capital, you, there, yeah, there aren't millions of dollars for most of us to make um, in being poets. But I think that I guess I was never drawn to that part of 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 a career. Um, I mean, we all got to eat and that's, you know, that's a thing that we all have to do. We all have to work inside the capitalist system and make the money to go to the grocery store um, and pay our rent. Um, but I think 
the thing that I loved about it is because of how it teaches me how to be in the world more than how it you know, paves my way. It doesn't pave my way in terms of like accolades or money, but it paves my way in terms of the kind of attention I pay to the world, the attention I pay to language, to others, to nature. When I'm out on a walk, it kind of keeps teaching me who I want to be in the world. And not in terms of, I've, I've you know, received so much more in terms of publication or award or whatever than I even hoped that I could have in a whole lifetime already. Um, but I think it's in other ways and more important ways, it teaches me about the person I want to be and it keeps giving me more than I feel like I am giving it. And I think that's just, I think it's with the way I always wanted love to feel and love to be. And I think that's how I would compare it as a career. Um, I would say love is a career in forgiveness. And so I don't know what poetry is a career in, maybe a career in wonder, um, a career in attention. But I definitely feel like it taught me how to be passionate about something. It was a way I could love, you know, with no holds barred, you're allowed to just be nuts about language, and that's totally permitted. <laughs> um, you can think about it all day. You can think about it all night. There's no restraining orders. That's the thing that you can just, you know, go all in for. Um, and over time, you know, to speak about, like, this book and what's next, too, um, part of how Come the Slumberlist of the Land of Nod came together uh, was realizing I had all of these one-night stand poems, and I believe in one-night stands. Um, for your romantic life, you make your own call, but I think in art, all practicing artists should have one-night stands with their art, pieces that they make for fun. Um, my friend Charlotte Pence said, play is our first profit. And I believe we should all be making sure to play, to make without needing a future, um, and to honor the, the idea of the one-night stand is just the one-off, pleasurable experience that isn't meant to go anywhere. And I think we should do that with our art as well, to make silly things, fun things, risky things, whatever things call to us that don't need to be a part of something people view or read or hear, um, but that are just for us. Um, just for pleasure. Um, maybe it's wonderful or terrible to think of them as purely selfish, but just for you. It's not about anything else, just having a good time making your art. And it was when I started to see the connection among my one-night stands that I caught feelings for my one-night stands, and then I made a book um, with some of those pieces. Uh, and then I kind of fell out of love with poetry. And the, the thing that's sort of next for me is I... Um, I started rereading all the books that I read that made me fall in love with poetry, and I used the titles in my first book as, um, as prompts, and I started writing back to those first love poems that I wrote um, as, a, as a younger person, a much younger person, um, and seeing what I had to say to my younger self now, what I had to say about love, um, what I had to say about mental illness, what I had to say about family and trauma, all of those things um, with a couple decades more experience um, and figuring out how to go back to the things that first made me fall in love with poetry and how can I reignite love because all loves grow stale and that's okay. Um, but how do you fall back in love with something that used to feel urgent? And so that's, that's a what I... That's a great I've, question. Yeah, and yeah. How do you do that? How do you fall back in love with something 
like that. I, it's, it's really lovely the way you, you put that. What is the process for that? Well, and I, I mean, I don't know if I'm in love with it the same way, but I think what is interesting and cool and why I love poetry and what it teaches me about love is it has taught me different ways to fall in love with it. And it has also taught me that the, the first four books I put together, and I'm working on the fifth now, none of them behaved the same way. Nothing that I learned from my first love helped me put together my second love. I was just like, I, st- I don't, <laughs> what's the trick to you? Um, and I think I only have one child, but I think parents with multiple kids must be like, how with the same genetic batch did you all end up so different? Um, because sometimes the things that you learn raising one kid don't help you with kid number two or three because they're entirely new and unique individuals. Um, but just like how different love can be and how you can fall in love with the same thing over and over again, but you're falling in love with it different, um, differently. Now, I haven't been romantically in love with somebody as long as I've loved poetry. Um, so I've had a longer love with poetry, but I think what it has taught me um, about a long-term romantic partner is that it's the same thing of like you have to keep falling back in love and the person you love changes and you have to change along, you know, maybe not in the same ways, but you have to be willing to let each other change and grow and fall in love with the different people somebody becomes because you're there, you're asking them to do the same for you. Um, and so my voice is always my voice in my poems, but the love is different every time. And the way it operates is different every time I work on a book. And I think that's interesting and fun. And I think that's why silence feels scary. Um, but I think rest is so important and then you fall back, you find the ways to find the spark again. You go back to the things that you, that taught you how to love in the first place and find your way back. And it has worked so far. Um, and I think in part because I'm not judging it either, the quality of this love or its intensity. It's just a new one. And I'm getting to experience all of the ways I can love poetry and make poems. I'm so glad you said that. And that's so beautifully put. I, I, I'd like to ask you to read a poem, but, but also before the interview started and we were discussing you reading a poem, you know, uh, you said something to the effect of, you know, poetry can be a little, a little scary. What do you mean by that in, in, in terms of how the audience perceives it or, or when does poetry get a little bit scary? I think people are scared of poetry because they're afraid they don't understand it. And I think that that's okay if people don't understand. I don't understand half the things that come out of me. Um, most of my emotions, too, when they arrive, I'm like, well, what is, what is happening in my heart right now? And it takes me a minute to understand it, too. But I think we don't need uh, everything to be memeable. We don't need everything to be a talking point or a sound bite. I think that's wonder is great and mystery is wonderful, and there are so few places left that tolerate mystery and wonder. Um, And I don't know if people go to the symphony and feel like they need to solve it um, or if they go into the Met and feel like they need to explicate every poem or every piece of visual art or something. Um, I hope not. Um, And so I don't know why poetry doesn't get the same sort of breath of just let it be an experience um, and not an equation that you need to solve. But I, I think sometimes so, that people so, feel so, intimidated. 
So that's the intimidation factor. For some reason, that poetry seems... I mean, I, I understand that because for me, among all the interviews that I've done, um, especially initially, I've done a lot of poets by now, but poets were always the most intimidating to me, I thought. You know, what exactly do we talk about with a poem? It's so... Um, so much of it is so abstract. So, uh, but that's also about a, a kind of literacy, isn't it? I mean, why be scared of that? On my level, it was, what exactly do I interview a poet about? But the idea of being scared of a poem itself is has something to do with I have to know what it it means, you know. Which, you're, as you're saying, we yeah. don't put that burden on paintings and plenty of other things. But um, yeah, that, that 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 seems a kind of a burden that's very difficult, and 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 why is that? Why why is that happening? I mean, is there is there a way around it? Is that about literacy? Is that about go to more readings, or or what is that? Well, and I think too, like I think I'm always interested in fear. Um, I just saw on someone's uh, page Facebook page recently a Carl Jung quote that I didn't fact check, um, so I hope it's correct. Um, but uh, where your fear is, there is your work. And I have long been attracted to the things I'm afraid of. And when I go to um, art museums, I walk into a room and I just look for the painting that makes me afraid or the, the sculpture. The, but the piece that gives me the visceral reaction uh, that provides discomfort, unease, fear, I just spend 20 minutes standing in front of that. I don't need to see every single thing in every room it's not a checklist. A museum is not a checklist. I'm going there to feel something, to experience something, and I don't need to know, you know. And that's, I have tried to learn a little bit more about visual art, but I sort of love that I'm an amateur because um, at the core, the etymology of amateur is one who loves, right? Uh, amare, amar, amor, um, that's the Latinate root for love. So an amateur is just one who loves. It's not about being an expert. It's not knowing about the history of all art movements or all techniques or all anything. It's just go stand in front of a painting or a sculpture and just feel something. And I think when I listen to music, too, I'm not trying to you know, know the biography of that musician. I'm not trying to solve their lyrics. I'm trying to bring my whole heart and into my listening and feel alongside somebody. And I think that, that that too is what I hope for in a poem, that somebody doesn't have to know everything about me or even understand entirely the situation I was in. But I, I hope I bring an emotion and, a, and an experience to people, um, something they can feel alongside or think alongside while they read it or listen to it. Tracy, uh, would you read a poem from the recent book? Yes, and I'm going to, I think, read um, this poem um, from Come the Slumberless to the Land of Nod is one of my favorites to read um, because I think it's like one of the only funny lines of poetry I've ever written in my whole life. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also it's a love poem and I, I don't think it's intimidating um, to listen to, and I think it's kind of fun. Um, I also think, real quick before I read it, I think one of the hardest things in the world to write is the love poem. I think there's a reason it took me four books before I ever wrote a love poem, because it's the thing everybody says to write what you're afraid of or write risky things. So for a long time, I wrote about pain because people thought I was being brave. But I don't think that talking about 
ways I've suffered is the bravest thing I could say. For me personally, love is the greatest and hardest vulnerability of all. And I think that is why I've often shied away from writing love poems and why it took me a long time to work up the courage to write them. Um, so I think what risk is is a very personal decision, and what's risky for me might not sound risky to listen to. Um, but this poem um, is called Love Poem Without a Drop of Hyperbole. Um, and I do think it's fun to know. In the middle of it, I talk about the Egyptian story of Isis and Osiris. Um, so Osiris got chopped up by his brother and all of his body pieces scattered um, across the world. And uh, his wife Isis went and collected up all the pieces of him. But rumor has it she was missing a very important baby-making part, um, but made him one and got pregnant. So that seemed to have worked out for them. But there's sort of an, a, a joke in there for anybody who knows that story. So I want people to know that the joke in the middle of the poem is about Osiris' baby-maker. So this is Love Poem Without a Drop of Hyperbole. I love you like ladybugs love windowsills. Love you like sperm whales love squid. There's no depth I wouldn't follow you through. I love you like the pawns and chess love aristocratic horses. I'll throw myself in front of a bishop or a queen for you, even a sentient castle. My love is crazy like that. I like that sweet little hothouse mouth you have. I like to kiss you with tongue, with gusto, with socks still on. I love you like a vulture loves the careless deer at the roadside. I want to get all up in you. I love you like Isis loved Osiris, but her devotion came up a few inches short. I'll train my breath and learn to read sonar until I retrieve every lost blood vessel of you. I swear this love is ungodly, not an ounce of suffering in it. Like salmon with its upstream itch, I'll dodge grizzlies for you. Like hawks to skyscraper rooftops, I'll keep coming back, maddened, a little hopeless, embarrassingly in love. And that's why I'm on the couch kissing pictures on my phone instead of calling you in from the kitchen where you are undoubtedly making dinner too spicy. But when you hold the spoon to my lips and ask if it's ready, I'll say it, it is, always, but never, there is never enough. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. And thank you for that introduction. Yes, I'm smiling and I was and I was smiling throughout that. Um thank you for that uh thank you for that, that reading and that introduction. Um so this is this is the most recent book that just came out and there's links in here so people can um can buy it if they want. Um I'm I wanna ask you the last question, but first I wanna talk a little bit about this this poem and you really said a lot about it, but this is um, a love poem that's not typical of, of what you're writing. In other words, this is, this is a very difficult poem for you to write. Or it was a very difficult poem for you to write. Yeah. Um, I think one vulnerability is just hard and scary. Um, I think the thing that made it possible is that it was secretly an elegy. It was about a love that was actually over. Um, rather than something I was in at the moment I was writing it. And so if the love was over, I was safe to write about it, um, rather than continue to risk vulnerability going forward. But um, I think that's part of what makes love risky. But it could still be happy, and it was happy. I, 
I was happy in that love. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of other things in that book also are sadder or darker. Um, but, you know, love uh, exists in every book, I think. And I, I believe I write from a place of love um, and certainly of loving my readers. I always want to take care of my readers, even if I write something sad or scary or hard. Thank you. Well, I feel like you have. At least this reader, I'm smiling, and, and I really enjoyed that. I, I, I want to ask you one more question, which is what are you reading at the moment? Um, I am reading a lot of uh, little things. Um, I just finished a book of poetry last night, but I'm also working on this book called Bones, Inside and Out. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction, um, especially like medical nonfiction I find very interesting. Um, I'm very curious about anatomy and anatomical art. Um, and so I was just reading a book about uh, the history of the medical art of the skeleton and actually how our bones work, which I really, I learned so many things that I had no idea about, um, mm. including that like one of the most famous, you know, historical physicians, Galen, saw that bones were white, so he thought they were made out of sperm. Like, how was that guy in charge of medicine? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I sort of love all of medical history. Yeah, that's fascinating. Tracy, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today, and, and congratulations again on, your, on, on, on this book coming out um, last year. And thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time and your work. Thank you for inviting me on and for asking me questions so I could revisit this book and talk about love. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.